All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. And we are continuing our study of our church's statement of faith and working through the section on Scripture. Uh, last week, we talked about canonicity, basically how we know we have the right books in our Bible. And uh, today we're going to be covering inspiration. And we start, start by reading the paragraph that we have in our statement, which says, uh, We believe the Word of God is found in the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, is God's divinely inspired revelation of himself to mankind and is to be treasured and obeyed. The Holy Spirit superintended human authors in various ways, such that through their individual personalities, vocabularies, and writing styles, they recorded God's word to man without error. Uh, last week we focused on the first half of the first sentence, about the 66 books basically. How do we know we've got uh, the right books? Why do we have these and not any others? Uh, today we're going to be focusing on the next part, which says God's divinely inspired revelation of himself to mankind. And so the question is, what does that mean? Uh, what, do, what are we saying when we say that the Bible is inspired? I'm going to start with 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, which is really the main text that people go to on the subject of inspiration. Uh, 2 Timothy, T- Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so there you see that. Paul says all scripture, which in the context is referring to the books of the Old Testament. Uh, But as we saw last week, the New Testament books were also considered to be scripture. We saw where uh, Paul, for instance, quotes the book of Luke and says that it's scripture. Um, And then uh, there's one where Peter quotes Paul and and says that his epistles are also scripture. And so by extension, this statement would apply to both the Old and New Testament. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, That is the only time where this statement is found in the Bible about inspiration. And so this is really the the text that that we get that word from. Now, I want to show you what this looks like in Greek. Um, You see there on the screen, pasta, grafe, theabnustas, which means uh, all or every scripture, theabnustas. So the key word there is theabnustas. What does that mean? Uh, This is what's known as a hapax legomena. I'm expanding your vocabulary a little. Uh, which just means that it's only found once in the entire New Testament, this Greek word. So that makes it difficult for uh, lexicographers to figure out exactly what it means. Normally when you're studying a word, uh, to try to get a definition of it, you would look at various uses of it throughout the text. So how does this author use it? You know, And if you've got a hundred different uses of it, you can compare them and, and get a feel for what it means. Uh, this word is only found in this one verse. And so it's difficult to... Uh, precisely nail down what it means. Add to that the fact that it's not actually a word. Uh, this is a made-up word by by Paul. It's a what's that? Uh, the last word theopneustos. It's just it's a Greek word where we get the word is given from inspiration. That's all from that one word theopneustos. Yes. Um, th- this is a contraction of two other Greek words. So at the beginning you see theos, which is the Greek word for God. And then in there you also see ne, uh, neo, basically, which is the Greek word that means to breathe or to blow. Um, so it can refer to somebody breathing out, or it can refer to like wind blowing um, a ship or something. <clears throat> so most people would picture that as, as God breathed. That's typically how it's understood. Uh, in fact, if you read, I think the NIV, ironically enough, translate this more literally than most translations, it actually says all scripture is God-breathed. Most would say all scriptures are inspired or given by God, something like that. 
Um, so it, it could be taken to mean God breathed, that these words are uh, spoken out by God, that the product of God's breath. Now, uh, that, that could be taken to mean that God whispered uh, in the ears of the human authors and told them word for word what to write down. I, I don't believe that. There's many reasons I don't believe that. Uh, there's also a concept of inspiration that says God, uh, maybe he didn't speak the words to them, but he somehow overtook their bodies and basically guided their pen across the page. Um, kind of, I always picture in my mind that they're sitting at a desk and their eyes roll in the back of their head and God just kind of overtakes them. And then they wake up from this trance and, and there's the Bible. Like, like they had no, uh, they didn't even know they were writing scripture. It was, it was that uh, involved. I don't believe that either, by the way. Uh, I'll give you a couple of texts here, one in particular in Luke that I think explains well why we can't hold that particular uh, position. And Malachi, if you don't mind, could you advance the slides there? Luke 1, starting in verse 1, says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Um, so God was not whispering in Luke's ear what to write down. We know that because Luke tells us exactly where he got his information. Uh, he says in those verses that he had talked to eyewitnesses, that he had read accounts uh, of the life of Jesus, and that's where he's getting this information from. And notice at the end there he says, because I had such a complete understanding, it seemed good to me to write to you, Theophilus. Um, God didn't even tell him to write the book of Luke. It was his idea. And so this, this is one place where, you know, we know that Luke, what Luke wrote was inspired scripture. We saw that at the end of last week where Paul quotes from the book of Luke and uh, calls it scripture. And yet it was not dictated to him from God is the point I'm trying to make. So then the question is, what does inspiration mean? Um, if God breathed, and depending on what you mean by God breathed, I may be okay with that definition, but I think a clearer definition would be God guided, uh, that the scripture was given to us by the Spirit of God. Not that God breathed each individual word of it, uh, or that God overtook the body of the writer so that he was mindlessly writing you know, word for word what God wanted. I believe the human authors wrote the Bible under the direction of God's Spirit. And that's taking that word neo as uh, basically blowing like the wind. Uh, think of it as a wind that carries a ship along the sea. Um, that doesn't, well, basically it's the idea that as they were writing, as they were writing their books, uh, the Holy Spirit was guiding them. He was carrying them along. Not that he was telling them necessarily word for word what to say, but that they were guided by God as they wrote. Uh, and this is one of the clarifications that I, as we were rewriting the Statement of Faith last year, I insisted that we put in there to clarify what we mean by inspiration. Because if you just say, uh, as many Statements of Faith do, um, something like the Bible is given by inspiration, we believe the Bible was inspired, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so I wanted to clarify that a little bit more, and that's what the next sentence of the statement is. If you notice, uh, right after it says that, we believe the Word of God is found in 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. It's God's divinely inspired revelation of himself to mankind and is to be treasured and obeyed. And then right after that, it, it defines what we mean by inspiration. The Holy Spirit superintended human authors in various ways such that through their individual personalities, vocabularies, and writing styles, they recorded God's Word to man without error. That is our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration. Uh, that defines what we mean by inspiration. 
The human authors who wrote the Bible did so under the guidance of God. Um, the, the fact that the Holy Spirit was over this process is important because of those last two words, without error. Uh, the only way that human authors could write a book with no error is if God was the one who guided them. So we're, we're not saying that, um, notice there it, it says these books have uh, different styles and vocabularies which reflect the individual person who wrote them. Um, so it's not that God overtook them or, or told them word for word what to write. If that were the case, all of it would sound the same. You wouldn't be able to tell what books were written by Paul and what books were written by John. Um, but you can. They, they write very differently. They speak very differently. Their vocabularies are different. If they were all just kind of robots writing exactly what God wanted, there wouldn't be those differences. So the Bible was written by humans, but God guided that process so that there is no error in Scripture. Uh, Peter wrote about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, where he says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well, that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Peter is saying in this text that we can have confidence in the accuracy and the inerrancy of the Bible because it wasn't written by human beings alone, but that they wrote as God guided them. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. And so the Bible is a book that was written by men, but those men were guided by God's Spirit. Notice also in our statement that it says that the Holy Spirit superintended human authors in various ways. Uh, in other words, uh, the mode of inspiration is not always the same. Now, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews says. In Hebrews 1 verse 1, it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. So God spoke in times past through the prophets, uh, but he spoke to them in diverse manners, in various ways. He had uh, different methods of conveying his words to them. And they, the prophets, would then give them to the people. Uh, we're going to look at a few of those ways, just tracing through a couple of different modes of inspiration, starting with Exodus 31. Uh, this is a famous text. You probably are familiar with it, but it says, uh, speaking of God, that he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him on, uh, upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. Now, what is this referring to? Ten commandments. So Moses went up into the mountain. God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. Uh, could we say that those are God-breathed? Well, technically, no. God didn't breathe out those words. He wrote them himself. Um, Exodus 32, verse 16 says, The tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. Now, was this God's word? Of course. God, God did not speak these words uh, to someone to write down. He actually wrote them down himself. Um, Moses later uh, got mad and threw the Ten Commandments down the mountain and broke the stone tablets, uh, which makes him the one person who broke all Ten Commandments at one time. But Exodus 34, verse 1 says, uh, after this, that the Lord said to Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest. And so uh, there God rewrote the Ten Commandments. Now that's not, um, that's not typical. God didn't write most of the Bible himself, you know, superseding any human beings. Uh, but that is one example of how God gave us his words. 
Uh, we'll look at a few other ways. Exodus 17, verse 14, this is a, a fairly common thing you see throughout the Pentateuch. A statement like this where it says, The Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now this comes at the end of the story where Moses is on a hill watching the battle uh, between Joshua and Amalek. And uh, you remember where Aaron and Hur are raising his hands because if his hands were up, they were winning. If his hands were down, they were losing. That whole story. And God tells Moses, uh, write this down. He doesn't tell him word for word what to write. He doesn't dictate it to him. He just says, write down an account of what's happened here today. And Moses wrote it down. So one way God gave us his words was writing it himself, at least in the case of the Ten Commandments. Um, at other times, God told someone, just write this down. Write down what you just saw happen. Uh, we're going to look at one really interesting example, and that is the book of Jeremiah. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah 36. I did not type all of this on the screen, um, so please do turn there. Jeremiah chapter 36. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read from the first chapter of Jeremiah, where God is calling Jeremiah to be a prophet. It says in Jeremiah 1 verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. So here's another way in which God gave his words. He touched Jeremiah the prophet's mouth and gave him uh, words from God. And throughout Jeremiah's ministry, God repeatedly speaks to Jeremiah and tells him uh, to go and to say something to someone, whether it's a king uh, or a group of people. So there are many times throughout the book where God gave his words to Jeremiah and told him what to say. But we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 36, uh, starting in verse 1 where it says, It came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations, from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Okay, so God says to Jeremiah, I want you to get a scroll and write down everything I've ever spoken to you. All the prophecies against Israel and Judah and all the other nations from the first time I appeared to you until now. I want you to get a, a, a roll of a book and write it all out. And this is where we get the book of Jeremiah. Uh, the scroll on which everything was written down that God had spoken to Jeremiah, that's what we have in our, uh, in our Bible, the book of Jeremiah. At least that's the first edition of it. Uh, so after being told to write this down, Jeremiah hires out the project uh, to a scribe. Verse 4 says, then Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah 36, verse 4, then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him, upon a roll of a book. Okay, so Jeremiah is going back in his mind, I guess, through all of the things that God had spoken to him, and he's dictating them to Baruch the scribe. Baruch is the one writing them out. Uh, so he's the one who actually writes the book of Jeremiah. Now we're going to skip down to verse 14. Uh, this is where the princes ask Baruch to read to them uh, the book of Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 36, verse 14. Therefore, all the princes sent Jehudai, the son of Nathaniah and uh, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushai, unto Baruch, saying, Take in thine hand the roll whereon thou hast read in the ears of the people, and come. So Baruch the son of Neri uh, 
took the roll in his hand and came unto them. And they said unto him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Baruch read it in their ears, and it came to pass, when they had heard all the words, they were afraid, both one and uh, other, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all these words. They asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Then Baruch answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them in ink in the book. Uh, then said the princes unto Baruch, Go hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where ye be. And they went into the king into the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to fetch the roll, and he took it out of uh, Elishama the scribe's chamber. And Jehudai read in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. It came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Nevertheless, Alnathan and Deliah and Gemariah had made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. So uh, they, they read the book of Jeremiah to the king, and he cuts it up and burns it. And after burning the scroll, the king gives orders that Baruch and Jeremiah would be found. He, he wants them to be captured. He's not happy with them. Uh, but God protects them uh, from him. Now, you might be wondering, if, if the king burned uh, the book of Jeremiah, how do we still have a book of Jeremiah? Where did this come from? Uh, verse 27, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. After that, the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. Take thee again another roll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. Start over, guys. So this is Jeremiah, second edition. Uh, drop down to verse 32. Then, then took Jeremiah another roll, gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And there were added besides unto them many like words. So this is the second edition of the book of Jeremiah, uh, revised and expanded with, with extra chapters. Uh, that's what we have in our Bible today. We have the second edition of Jeremiah with extra content. If you're ever reading through Jeremiah and you wish it was a little shorter, uh, you can blame King Jehoiakim because he burned the shorter edition. Um, by the way, this is not super relevant, but I've came across this and thought it was cool. You remember that um, Baruch, the son of Neriah, was the scribe who actually wrote the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was dictating to him. Uh, this is a fossilized seal from the 6th century BC, and it's the seal of Baruch, the son of Neriah, the scribe. Uh, that's what's written on the front of it there. Uh, this would have been something like a, his signet or something that was on his finger. And if you actually notice on the top corner there, there is a fingerprint that most people speculate is probably Baruch's. Um, so that's just a random bit for you. We have a fingerprint from a biblical author. So there you go. Uh, we've talked about a few ways that God gave us his words. The Ten Commandments, of course, were unique. They were written directly uh, by God's finger. Uh, much of the Bible was written by men that God told to write things down. Uh, Jeremiah, of course, is an interesting history because the first edition was uh, destroyed. 
Um, and so he, he had to rewrite it all. We're going to look now at Daniel 7. Uh, this is another case, another way in which God gave us his words. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of, uh, of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And it goes on from there. Uh, but here we can see that God gave some of his words through visions to the prophets. Uh, so Daniel is asleep on his bed, and God speaks to him, gives him this vision, and he wakes up and writes it all down. Um, in Revelation, God revealed things to John in a few different ways. Uh, in chapters 2 and 3, you have the letters to the churches. This is where Jesus tells John uh, word for word what to write down. So there are some instances in Scripture where God uses dictation as one method. Uh, we'll, we'll read just a couple of verses to give you a, a feel for this. Revelation 2, verse 1. Uh, this is Jesus speaking to John. He says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, uh, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. And it goes on from there. Seven different letters uh, to seven churches that are dictated from Jesus to John. And he, and he told John specifically word for word uh, what to write down. So you do have some instances like that. Um, but that's not the rest of, of Revelation. The rest of Revelation, uh, angels appear to John and tell him to write down what he's seeing. So they don't tell him specifically word for word what to say. He just says, uh, write down what you just saw. And so he wrote it down. So sometimes, as we've seen, God wrote the book, uh, wrote some of the words of the Bible with his own finger. Uh, sometimes God told someone, simply write this down like he did with Moses. Sometimes God actually dictated uh, to the human writer, word for word, what to write, as in Revelation 2 and 3. And sometimes God gave his words to a prophet through a vision. Let's look at one more way that God inspired the Bible. This is how you get much of the New Testament. Uh, the book of John, verse 14, this is Jesus speaking to his apostles. He says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Uh, so Jesus spent three years with these uh, 12 apostles, and then when Jesus left and he ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit 10 days later. And the Holy Spirit indwelled the apostles, and Jesus said that the Spirit would teach them and bring to their memory the things that Jesus had already taught them. Uh, this is how God inspired, for instance, you think of like the book of John. John was an apostle. He traveled with Jesus. He heard him teach. He saw miracles. Uh, but we're not relying on John's memory, memory alone when we read the Gospel of John, because the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus said, would bring to your remembrance the things that I've already taught you. And so that's one way uh, you know, God's Spirit would uh, cause him to remember things Jesus had said and done, and he wrote that in the Gospel we have today called John. Um, the, other, the apostles also wrote things other than the Gospels, though. They, of course, wrote things that they had not seen. Um, they wrote things, for instance, in their epistles that obviously uh, that wasn't during the life of Christ. That came later. And so we, we see here, even in this text, that the Holy Spirit didn't just cause them to remember things they had seen, uh, but he would also give them new revelation. Notice it says in verse 26 there, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance. So there's a new teaching and as well as bringing to your memory things I've already taught you. Uh, this is more explicitly given in John 16. Again, this is Jesus speaking to them. 
He says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. And so uh, Jesus had other things that he wanted to teach the apostles, um, but I don't know what he means exactly. You cannot bear them now. That may mean that you're not going to understand them right now. Um, and so Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to give them this new revelation. Again, notice the importance of the apostles as conduits of Scripture. This is essential because uh, with the death of the apostles, the canon is closed. I mentioned this last week, but I want to make sure that we emphasize that. Um, the reason we have these 27 books in our New Testament and no others is these are the books that, that are written and endorsed by the apostles. We don't need somebody to come around you know, thousands of years later, like Joseph Smith, for instance, with the Mormons, um, and add other books to the New Testament. We don't accept those because they're not written on apostolic authority. These are uh, specific people who were chosen and selected by Jesus um, to do this work, and the Holy Spirit guided them so that what they wrote was the words of God that he wanted us to have. That's the doctrine of inspiration. All scripture is theopneustos, or given by God. God's Spirit guided the men who wrote the Bible so that what we have in these 66 books is the inerrant word of God. So where did the Bible come from? You could say um, that it was written by you know, 40 different human authors. That is true. But it's also true that it came from God, that it is God's words. Uh, those are not mutually exclu exclusive. Um, and this is the understanding of the doctrine of inspiration that Jesus had. We see in Mark 12, verse 36, this is Jesus speaking. He's quoting from the book of Psalms, and he says, For David himself said, By the Holy Ghost... The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So he's quoting from the book of Psalms. He says, this is what David wrote, but David wrote this by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had this understanding that, that uh, the scriptures were written by human beings like David, but they were writing under the guidance of God's Spirit. It wasn't just David's words. Uh, one final text, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Matthew here is quoting from Isaiah, and he says, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So there you see, uh, this is also not only the view of Jesus, but the view of the early church, the apostles like Matthew. Uh, quoting from Isaiah, he says, uh, This is what was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. And so the Bible is both a human book written by human beings, uh, but it's not only a human book. It was also from God. It's also the Lord's words. And that's just one example. There's many other passages we could look at where Jesus and the apostles confirm this understanding of inspiration, that the Bible is uh, both a human book written by man, uh, but it was not only human words. These were also God's, God speaking through these men. Uh, any questions on anything we've covered so far? Anything at all? Okay. Uh, back to our statement here. Uh, we have basically finished up our, our first section. We'll just read through it briefly. It says, We believe the Word of God, as found in the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, is God's divinely inspired revelation of Himself to mankind and is to be treasured and obeyed. The Holy Spirit superintended human authors in various ways, such that through their individual personalities, vocabularies, and writing styles, they recorded God's Word to man without error. Any questions on anything written there? Malachi, are you stretching or are you raising your hand? Yeah, I don't have a question per se, but um, did you 
Yes. Yes, you're getting way ahead of me, though. Um, so this week we're on inspiration. He asked a question about the transmission of the text, basically the copying of the manuscripts. Uh, can we trust those things? First of all, let me recommend this book um, that's on the back table. I ordered more copies. I know they were all gone last week. So if you didn't get one, Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. This explains um, a lot of those very same questions. He gets into um, transmission of the text, the reliability of those manuscripts, and so forth. Um, but I'm going to actually spend, in two weeks, we're going to spend a whole Sunday basically on that subject. So this week was inspiration. Next week we're going to talk about uh, inerrancy, authority of Scripture, sufficiency. And then the next week will be uh, the transmission of the text. And I'm trying to fit English translations in there as well. That may be two separate weeks. Um, but I am going to go into that more in depth then. But if you want me to just say something quickly, um, I would say, first of all, the Old Testament, there is virtually zero debate about which text to use. Uh, if you read a modern translation or as old as, you know, the Geneva Bible from the 1500s, they're basically identical in the Old Testament. I think there's like six variants in the entire Old Testament, which is three quarters of your Bible. So, I mean, almost word for word agreement. The reason that is, uh, is the Jews had a very meticulous way, especially the Masorites, of recording um, these books. So they would count every single word, and then they would count every single letter. And if there was any discrepancy, they would burn the scroll because they did not want to give a copy of a manuscript that had any errors in it. Uh, the Christians with the New Testament were not quite as careful as the Jews, unfortunately. Uh, some of that is due to persecution. They, you know, they were having, it was illegal for periods of the Roman Empire to have a Bible, and so they were having to hide these things. And, uh, and they were written very quickly and, and quietly and then spread around to different churches. So there's more variants in the New Testament, um, but even in the New Testament, if you, if you read, well, there's several things we can say. First of all, uh, the vast majority of the variants affect nothing. Um, you might hear somebody, a skeptic, claim something like, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of variants in the New Testament. Technically, that's true, uh, but that's only because we have thousands of manuscripts, and every time a scribe made a spelling error, that counts as a variant. Um, so, for instance, the word we just saw up there, theopneustos, that's a big word. If somebody misspelled it four different ways, four different scribes, that counts as four variants. Okay, so a variant in that sense would include, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, and we're going to get into that more later. There's also things like the movable new in Greek. Um, I don't know exactly how it is. It, it doesn't change anything of the meaning. So it's sort of like the difference between a and an in English. Uh, you say I have, you know, a car and an apple. It means the same thing. If you said, I have a apple, it's not right grammar, but I know what you mean. Uh, in Greek, there's something like called the movable new. It's just a, it's equivalent to our letter N, and it goes on the front of certain words, depending on different grammatical things like that. And, and the scribes mess that up all the time. Um, but it doesn't change anything. So what I'm saying is the vast majority of the textual variants are not even translatable into English, because they're just differences in Greek spelling or... Uh, grammatical errors that were made. Um, as far as significant textual variants that actually do change meaning on occasion, uh, first of all, those are rare. Again, we're talking about less than 1% of the Bible. This is a very tiny portion. Um, the vast majority of those variants, well, one thing to say is we know where they are. Uh, it's, it's not like we have questions about every other verse. There are specific places 
uh, where manuscripts have different readings. None of those affect church doctrine. As in, if you were to read, like I said, I think I said this Wednesday night. If you were to read from an NIV and you were to read from, uh, like I said, forget the King James. I don't want to be controversial. If you were to read from a Geneva Bible, we'll, we'll go older than the King James. Um, although they're based on very different manuscripts, as far as the location and the time periods, uh, the vast majority of it is the same. And you're not going to have a difference in doctrine over those types of things. So nothing in our statement of faith would be different if we were using uh, different manuscripts from a different time period. Um, there are occasional changes, occasional things that a scribe missed a line or added a little extra or something like that. We'll talk about those in two weeks. Um, I think that's probably all I want to say right now because I, I do plan on going more in depth uh, to try to explain those things. I hope it will be clear. Uh, it is a complex subject. Um, there are many, many people that spend their lives, they get PhDs in this stuff, and they spend their lives studying these manuscripts, comparing them. And, and they're the reason we have such accurate New Testaments today, because they are uh, trying to basically figure out which wordings were original. Um, and I think they do a very good job. So, uh, yeah, as far as transmission goes, two weeks from today, we'll talk more about that in detail. Uh, and if you have questions, we can we can talk more after that. I want to close here by giving... Um, you have another question? Oh, Catherine has a question. Yeah, they're not as nitpicky as we are. That's really the explanation. Uh, she asked, "How do we, like what do we do when Jesus, for instance, in Luke quotes from Isaiah and it's uh, worded slightly differently?" Um, all I can really say is they were not as nitpicky. For instance, the, the Jesus and the apostles uh, used the Septuagint quite a bit. Um, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so they're reading from a translation of the original text, which translations never are going to be identical. Um, there's always nuances in the original language that can't come over into another language. Uh, for instance, in French, the word home, there's no word for home in French. Uh, there's a word for house, but that's not quite the same as our English word home. Um, there's things like that in every language. And so when it comes to the quotations of the Old Testament, most of them, they mean the same thing. So, you know, I, I'm thinking specifically of Jesus' sermon in Nazareth where he talks about uh, how he came to heal the brokenhearted and, and things like that. I think the Old Testament might say heal them that are bruised or something, but it's the same idea. Um, so, yeah, most of that is either reading from the, from the Septuagint uh, or they just... Quotations, the way that we think of them today, are not the way that they were thought of before. Uh, when we think of quotations, we think of direct... You know, quotation marks and a direct quotation. Um, in Jewish culture, that's not the way things were. You could quote somebody and basically paraphrase. So long as you got the sense right, it counted. It was fine. Um, there also weren't quotation marks in Greek or, or in Hebrew for that matter uh, because they just didn't quote things directly like that. They would say the prophet said this, and so long as you gave a summary of what was said and it was an accurate, faithful summary, it was considered Some of it is that. But like I said, some of it is also them quoting, but not, they weren't trying to be word for word, in other words. And I mean, we can do this too. We can say, I'm trying to think of something that we could quote. Sometimes you'll say, okay, um, I don't know, Trump said he wanted to lower taxes. What he actually said was, uh, I would like to drastically lower the taxes on the middle class. Okay, they're not exactly the same, but it's not wrong for me to say Trump said he wanted lower taxes. It's getting the sense of what was said. Um, 
So anyway, that's kind of some of what's going on there. Any other questions? Okay. I want to close by reading uh, a section from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which again, I recommend to you. He has a great section there on inspiration. Uh, but he gives here several benefits of having God's words written down. Uh, first, there is much more accurate preservation of God's words for subsequent generations. Uh, to depend on memory and the repeating of oral tradition is a less reliable method of preserving these words throughout history than is their recording and writing. Second, the opportunity for repeated inspection of words that are written down permits careful study and discussion, which leads to a better understanding and a more complete obedience. Third, God's words in writing are accessible to many more people than they are when preserved merely through memory and oral repetition. They can be inspected at any time by any person and are not limited in accessibility to those who have memorized them or those who are able to be present when they are recited orally. Thus, the reliability, permanence, and accessibility of the form in which God's words are preserved are all greatly enhanced when they are written down. Yet there is no indication that their authority or truthfulness is diminished. In other words, he's saying there, these are God's words and they're written by humans, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, these are faithful, accurate copies of God's words, and yet they were written down mostly by human beings. And every time we open the pages of the Bible, I, I hope we realize uh, that these are not just human words. These are God's words. Uh, it's just as much as if God was speaking to us uh, directly every time we open the Bible. These are God's words. We have to believe them. We have to obey them just as readily as we would the voice of God. Because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And that's basically the doctrine of inspiration in a nutshell. Uh, like I said, I do have a, uh, another half dozen copies of Greg Gilbert's book back there. Uh, if you did not get one, I encourage you to grab one on your way out. My only request, again, if you take one, please read it soon, in the next month or two. Uh, please don't take one and have it sit on your shelf. Uh, on the doctrine of inspiration particularly, again, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, he has a great chapter in there on the subject. Um, and then one final book that I will mention, I actually just started reading this because somebody bought it for me recently. Uh, but this is Benjamin Warfield's uh, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible by B.B. Warfield. If you want to go deep on this particularly, uh, this is the, the place to go. Um, it is a, a classic book on the subject. It, it's been read widely for a very long time. Uh, you can't find it on Kindle. I don't know why, uh, but you, have to, you can get a physical copy on Amazon. So sorry about that, Malachi. Uh, any questions on anything that we've covered? Canonicity from last week or inspiration today? Uh, we do have a few minutes if there's questions. Anything at all? Now everything's clear or are you just not interested? <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, next week we're going to talk about uh, basically the implications of inspiration, uh, which is authority um, and inerrancy and sufficiency. And then the last week we'll talk about the transmission of the text. I'll get into some nerdy Greek stuff. And we'll also talk about English Bible translations.